Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Folks, we're going to look at the book of Esther today and then the next couple of Sundays including the first Sunday of January, we're going to focus on Christmas and New Year's. So if you're behind on your reading, you have till next year to get caught up. (laughs) And so today we're going to look at the book of Esther. And I want you to open your Bibles there. There are only two books in the Bible named after a woman. Ruth, we've already looked at, was a Gentile woman who married a Jewish man. Esther is a Jewish woman who marries a Gentile man. There's no mention of God, his name anyway, in the book of Esther. You don't find prayer mentioned or dependence upon God. It's not quoted in the New Testament. But you do see the unseen hand of God all through these 10 chapters. Esther appears on the scene 60 years after Cyrus the Persian gave permission for the Jews to go back to Israel to begin rebuilding. And Esther's marriage to the king probably opened the door for Nehemiah to be the king's cupbearer to Xerxes' son, Artaxerxes. Without Esther, Jerusalem might never have been rebuilt. And the Jewish race might have been slain. You can, you can divide this book into two parts. First five chapters talk about the great danger that's coming. And the last five chapters talk about the great deliverance. One bit of trivia for you. The longest verse in the Bible is chapter 8, verse 9. The longest verse. Not the longest prayer, but it's the longest Actual, when you've got one verse, it's the longest verse in the Bible. We've been talking about how the children of Israel returned after the Babylonian captivity to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and Israel, but not all of them returned. A lot of them stayed back in Persia or Babylonia that the Persians had taken over. And some of them that remain there and the book of Esther is set there. I want you to know that all the books and in your Bible in the Old Testament after the book of Nehemiah fit into the time frame between Genesis and Nehemiah. And Esther fits between chapter 6 and 7 of Ezra in that little white space right there. There's a 60 year or 70 year period there that, that this is where this takes place. Now, For all of you OCD people, this is going to be a frustrating message because I want to do something a little different today. I want to tell you the story, and then at the end, we're going to write down those life lessons. So it's going to be a little while before you write anything, so don't get anxious. Just put your pen down and listen for a little bit, okay? I'll I'll get you through it. I did it through the 8 o'clock crowd. I'll do it through you. You don't have to worry. We'll get it done. But I've got to tell you the story, the account, before you can really get the lessons from it. 
The first verse in chapter one, and open, keep your Bibles open because I will refer to a couple of places in there. But the first verse in the book of Esther says, now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. That word Ahasuerus literally is a title, like Caesar was a title. The actual king's name is Xerxes. You had Cyrus, then Darius, Xerxes. And what I want you to understand is that there's something going on at the very beginning of this book. Cyrus took over the Babylonian Empire, probably about 550 or excuse me, earlier than that. And then later there was a, there was a, Darius became the king and there was a revolt by the Greeks around Athens. And Darius sent some troops over there, but those rebels in Athens defeated or, or ran out the Persians. Now it was at the battle of Marathon and there was a messenger from that battle who ran 26 miles to tell the news, and he died after he ran that. And since we, we get our word marathon in 26.2 miles, and some of you have run those marathons, uh, y'all are some of the dumber ones that I know of that run that far. <laughs> and you know I'm just teasing. I, I'm jealous I can't do it. I can run the .2 miles, but I can't get the 26 in there. But... Anyway, Darius was so angry that he was going to go back and he was going to fix it. He was going to punish them. And he amassed a great army, but before he could go back and get vengeance on the Athenians, he died. And so the vengeance was passed down to his son, Xerxes. Xerxes is who's the king in Esther. And Xerxes has an army of about 250,000 men or more and he heads up to Greece, but the Greeks run him out. They, they didn't win. And so the book of Esther opens with King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, as he's called in the Bible. He's got a summit going on. It's been going on six months from 127 provinces. And he's trying to figure out a way to go back probably and finish off the Greeks and run them off. Of course, we know eventually the Greeks are going to win, but not right now because of Alexander the Great, but that's a whole, that's a little bit later. Well, Xerxes has had this six-month summit. All these people are together. And at the end of that summit, he has a seven-day blowout banquet. All the eating, drinking, music, dancing you can handle. You folks would have probably loved it. And after about seven days, obviously the kings had probably a little too much to drink. Now, in those days, the men and the women met separately. King, all the men had a big party and all the women had a party and they didn't ever mix. Well, probably what happened at the end of that seven days and the kings had too much to drink, he gets to bragging about how beautiful the queen is. And so he probably says something, guys, you just won't believe how beautiful the queen is. And I, in fact, I'm going to show you how beautiful she is. So he sends a servant over to the women's party and finds the queen, Vashti is her name. And he says, the king has commanded that you put on your prettiest dress and your queenly 
crown and you come over and he's going to parade you in front of everyone. Now, whether it was going to be immodestly or I don't know, but I do know that Vashti just simply said, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, the servant had to go back to the king and tell him she's not coming. And that sobered him up quickly. And it was such a terrible thing for the wife of the king not to obey the king that those men had to have a big meeting. And, and some of those men said, listen, king, if your wife is not going to obey you, then guess what's going to happen in the kingdom? All the wives are going to rebel. They're not, gonna, they're not going to obey any of us. So they called the legislature together. And, and you've heard the term, the laws of the Medes and the Persians. Those were laws that can't be changed. And they consulted the law. And the law stated that if the queen did not obey the king, she was to be banished. And that's exactly what Xerxes did. He banished Queen Vashti. Now, after a while, after he sobered up and after spending some time alone in the palace, he got lonely. Now, you got to understand, I'm giving you the West Texas version of this, okay? You're going to read this for yourself, but I'm loosely paraphrasing it so you'll understand it better. He got lonely and decided that, you know what? I need a new queen. Now, he had a lot of wives, but the queen was always the number one. And he decided he needed a new queen, and so they put together a queen search committee. And this search committee went all over. They said, we're going to go all over the 127 provinces. We're going to find the most beautiful women. We're going to help prepare them. However they did that, I don't know, with with ointments and perfumes and stuff. And then they're going to parade. Well, actually, they're going to bring it to the king, and he spent the night with them. Now, what they did during the night, it doesn't say. But I got a good idea, don't you? And they kept bringing these women before him, and he kept saying, no, I I don't like this one. I want another one. I want another one. I want another one. Now, let me pause for a moment. At this time, there was a man, a Jewish man, by the name of Mordecai. And Mordecai was raising his cousin, Esther. Now, her name in Hebrew is Hadassah, but she was was named, and, and that word literally means star, But she was given a Persian name, uh, Esther, which was after the goddess Ishtar. And so she somehow, I don't know if if they made her come or she willingly decided to enter it or whatever, but the fact is she was one of those chosen. And when she was brought to the king, the king basically said, wow. And after spending some time with her, decided she's the new queen. I don't need to see anyone else. And so you have a Jewish girl who was an orphan. Her parents had been killed or, or had died. I don't know about killed, but they, were di- they had died. And Mordecai was raising her. Now she has become the new queen and she is given the crown of Vashti. Now, co- cousin Mordecai was the kind of guy who kept his ears and eyes open. And one day as he was by the gates of the city, he heard a plot of men that were going to assassinate the king. And so he went to Esther, his cousin, and said, you've got to tell the king that there's two men or they're plotting an assassination attempt on Xerxes. And sure enough, Esther told him the men were arrested and they were executed and the king's life was saved. And everything was going along fine until a fourth character enters the scene. Now his name is Haman. 
the Agagite. A-G-A-G-ite. Agagite. Now what's significant about this is that you may remember in reading earlier in the Exodus, or actually Joshua, about the Amalekites. When they were entering into the promised land, first group they ran into problems with were the Amalekites. The Amalekites kept fighting them and kept giving them misery. And later, many years later, when Saul became the king, God told Saul, you go back and finish off the Amalekites. Get them out of there. Well, Saul went back, but he disobeyed. He allowed the king of the Amalekites to live, and his name was Agag. A-G-A-G. What a name. Agag. Well, the Agagites were the descendants of this king, and centuries later, you've got Haman, who's a descendant of King Agag, well, not directly, but, you know, of that line. And he came from a family who hated Jews. They absolutely despised them. And so Haman was a very wealthy man, and he got an audience with the king and probably bribed him. I don't, we don't know, but he probably did. And the king said, Haman's the kind of guy I'm looking for. I'm going to make him, basically, it was like the prime minister. He said, everyone's going to respect you. Everyone will bow down to you or stand up in your honor. And sure enough, when he was walking around the palace, everywhere he walked, everyone would either bow down or stand up in his honor, except for one Jewish man, Mordecai. Mordecai would not bow down before him. Probably because Mordecai said, we don't bow to, he didn't say this, it's because God's not mentioned, but, but Mordecai probably said, we don't bow to anybody but God. Well, it made Haman very angry, and first of all, he hated the Jews, and when he found out that Mordecai was a Jew, he hated him even more. So Haman goes before King, Artaxer- King Xerxes and says, listen, there's a group of people in your kingdom who are different kind of people. They've got different laws. They have different customs. They don't honor you. They won't even bow down to me. And if they won't bow down to me, then they're not going to bow down to you. And so we need to do something about these people. And Xerxes gives him his ring and says, well, then you go make a law and here's the signet ring to to stamp it into law. Well, Haman goes with his buddies, and they already know they're going to get rid of all the Jews. They just try to decide when to do it. Now, this is significant. So they they like to throw dice. And in the Hebrew and Aramaic, the word for dice is per, P-U-R, per. And they would throw dice to find out when the right time was to do something. They rolled the dice a number of times and finally decided that the time was the 14th day of the Jewish month of Adar. And that all the Jews would be killed. They would send out a decree and they did. He stamped it with the king's ring. It was the law of the Medes and Persians. It went to all the 127 provinces. And the decree said, basically, on the 14th day of Adar, it is free kill a Jew day. That's how I say it. He said, you have the legal right to kill all the Jews you can kill on that day, and you won't be prosecuted for it. Furthermore, if you kill a Jew, you can get claim to whatever property they have. 
Well, when Mordecai heard this or heard about it, the Bible says that he fasted. Now, folks, Jewish people did not fast without praying. He, it doesn't mention that he prayed, but you know good and well he was praying during that fast. He put on sackcloth and ashes, which was a sign of mourning and humility. And when Esther heard that Mordecai was out in public in sackcloth and ashes, she sent him a new suit of clothes and said, hey, here's some clothes to wear. You can wear these fancy clothes. You don't have to be wearing that. Well, Mordecai basically said, I'm not putting that on because I am... We are in trouble and you need to talk to the king. And she said, what about? And he tells her what's going on. And Esther says, I can't do that. I can't go into the king because there's a law that says if a person enters the king's chamber without being invited, they can be put to death on the spot. And notice what Mordecai says to Esther. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan, which is Susa, it's the capital city, and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So after a period of time, they fast and are probably praying. Esther decides to leave the queen's bedroom, the queen's chambers, and go down to the king unannounced. And when she walks in, I can just picture the guards with all their weapons ready to assassinate anybody that comes in there. And when she walks in, the king looks at her and smiles and says, Esther, it's good to see you. I haven't seen you in a month. Come on in. I'm going to give you half, I'm going to give you anything you want. If you want half my kingdom, I'm going to give it to you. You just name it. He was taken with her. Well, she smiled at him and said, "I just came to let ask you to let me cook you dinner for tomorrow night. Would you come? And by the way, would you bring your prime minister Haman with you?" The king says, "Well, if that's all you want, you've got it." And he told Haman, "Tomorrow night we're going to eat Hester. Queen Esther is cooking a supper. Haman probably thought, you know, I got it made. I've been invited to the queen's chambers for dinner. They go and Esther feeds them. She's a perfect hostess. The table's set. The food is perfect. She entertains them. They have a great meal together. And the king knows. He knows that there's something. There's more to that than this. You wouldn't risk your life to come in there and invite me to dinner. So he says, Esther, what do you really want? And she said, well, what I really want is for you to come back tomorrow night and eat, and I want Haman to come also, and then I'm going to tell you what I really want. So the king said, it's a deal. Now, as they were leaving, Haman walks through the palace. Everybody's bowing down to him. When he comes by the gates, Mordecai doesn't bow down. And Haman is furious. He goes home, and he let that one thing bother him. Have you ever known anybody like that? You know, everything can be going great. And then one little thing like that just ruins our whole day. Well, he comes walking into the house and his wife says, well, how did it go, Haman? It was terrible. It was terrible. 
She probably said, was the food bad? No, food was great. Was, was the conversation bad? No, it was great. But when I was walking out the back door, Mordecai would not stand up and honor me. So his wife said, listen, what you need to do is to build a platform and hang him. Build it 75 feet high. Now, when, you, when they hung people in Persia, it wasn't by the neck like we do in West Texas or like we did in West Texas. <laughs> Let me be clear. Let me be perfectly clear. <laughs> they had spikes there and they literally hung them there. It was, it was brutal. And she said, you can hang that little Jewish man on that 75 foot tree and so he told his, since he was the prime minister, he had people start building that immediately. Well, that night, the king couldn't sleep for some reason. And so he called one of the servants. He said, bring me the record books. I'm going to look through the record books. And I would imagine he was probably thinking, well, I can read through all the records and maybe it'll be so boring I'll go to sleep. Sort of like you trying to read through the phone book. Well, the servant began to read through the record book and it came to the time when Mordecai had actually reported about the assassination plot. And the king interrupted the servant and he said, well, by the way, I remember that. Did we ever do anything to reward him? And the servant said, no. And so, meanwhile, Haman hadn't been sleeping that night and he shows up the next morning really early hoping to get an audience with the king because he's going to tell the king that he wants to hang Mordecai. Well, he's outside the door and the king is saying something like, well, is there anybody important around here? One of the guards says, Haman's outside the door. Good, I trust him, bring him in here. And when Haman comes in, the king immediately says, listen, how do you think I ought to reward somebody that has done so much for me and really pleases me for the man who really, really pleases me? And Haman thinks he's talking about him. And Haman says, well, king, you ought to take one of your robes and let him wear it. You ought to put him on the finest horse, let him ride it. You ought to take, him, take one of your crowns and let him put it on his head and parade him through the streets of the city, crying out in a loud voice. This is how the king treats the man who pleases him. The king says, that's a wonderful idea. I want you to go do that for Mordecai. <laughs> so Haman does. He gets a robe and a crown and a king's horse. He led him around all day in the streets of Susa, having to call out, here's how the king treats the one who pleases him. Haman goes home so angry, and suddenly a messenger comes to him and says, don't forget you have supper with the queen and the king tonight. And he'd forgotten all about it. He runs to the palace as quickly as he can. He goes in, and the king and queen are already sitting down, ready for dinner. They eat dinner, and then the king says, all right, Esther, no more of this pretense. Tell me what's going on. Now look at chapter 7, verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated, had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman 
So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before the queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden of the palace of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? And as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. She points out Haman, the king is so angry, he gets up and leaves. She's got to think about this a moment. Well, Haman is begging for his life and he gets too close to Queen Esther and when the king comes back in, it looks like he's making a pass or assaulting her and so he is arrested immediately He's trying to decide what to do, and one of the guards says, well, outside, there's a 75-foot hanging tree. And the king said, put him on it. And they executed him. Later on, Xerxes hung all of Haman's 10 sons on that tree. But that's not the end of the story. Because now the law has been decreed that on the 14th day of Adar, all the Jews are going to be killed, or any, that's kill as many as you can. And the law of the Medes and Persians can't be changed. And Esther comes to the king. And, and see, up until this time, the king didn't know Esther was a Jew. Had never been revealed to him. And she said, what can we do? And the king says, you're right. We cannot do anything about the decree because the law can't be changed. But Mordecai comes with, with an idea and basically says... Why can't we put out another decree that on the 14th day of Adar that all Jews can arm themselves and defend themselves that day? And so Xerxes gives him the ring, says put out the edict, and it goes all throughout the 127 provinces. And the day finally comes. Now the 14th of Adar was a long way from where all this began. And so when that day finally comes, the, the scripture tells us that even some of the Persians defended the Jewish people. And on that day, a lot of Persians were killed and the Jews were saved. Now, when the word got back, Mordecai says, on this day, 14th day of Adar, we're going to celebrate that our sorrow has been turned to joy and our sadness has been turned to gladness. We're going to celebrate this day, 14th Adar, from now on. And today, our Jewish friends in the spring, because this day fluctuates sometime between the end of February and during the month of March, it always depends on their, their lunar calendar, they celebrate the feast of Purim, P-U-R-I-M. Pur meaning dice that were thrown. And when they celebrate this in the synagogues, they read the story of Esther. And every time the name Haman is mentioned, the Jewish men spit, stomp their feet, and make ugly noises. Now what can we learn? Now you get your pen ready, okay? Finally, finally. I think there's several life lessons. First of all, God has a place and a purpose for you. You may not know what it is. Esther, when she became queen, did not have any idea 
that God was going to use her to save the Jewish people. Probably all the Jewish people in existence at that time were around that, that place. And all, well, in the Persian Empire, they were the only Jews that existed. And she saved the entire Jewish race, but, but she didn't know that. And, and you know what? God may have put you in a place that you have no idea where, why he's got you there and how he's going to use you, but you just remain faithful. You keep on doing what God's called you to do, to be faithful, to be patient, and honor God wherever he's put you. He, he hadn't forgotten where you are. He knows where you are. The second thing is, your choices impact those close to you. Esther made good choices and saved the Jewish race, basically. Haman, on the other hand, made some bad choices and even his 10 sons were executed because of it. You need to understand that you don't live your life in isolation. That everything you do affects other people. Those close to you especially. So don't ever think that your sin or your choices, I should say, your choices are known and they do impact those people around you. The third thing, hatred and bitterness have serious repercussions. The gun of hatred and bitterness always backfires. Some of you hate somebody. Some of you are holding bitterness in your heart towards someone. And you know who you end up hanging is yourself. I read this this week. Bitterness is self-cannibalism. Bitterness is self-cannibalism. It only hurts you. And hatred and bitterness and anger, if you don't learn to forgive and to move on, it's eventually going to wind up hanging you on the gallows you built for somebody else. The fourth thing, you must, we must trust God even when he seems absent. Now, is that applicable for us today? Where is God in all of this today? We've been asking for a cure. We prayed for elections. We prayed, and it may not have turned out how you wanted. It didn't for me. All through Esther, you don't see God's name mentioned but he's all over the place. In fact, when Esther walked into the king's room unannounced, God was there. Write down Proverbs 21.1, and I want you to remember this. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. God can use anybody, even those people who are supposedly leading our nation. God can direct them. So our trust is not in the government. Our trust is not in a vaccine, even though a lot of people are living for that day. Our, our trust is in God. And folks, don't forget that. We're living in, so many people are living in fear. God didn't put that fear in us. He gives us a mind to, do, to be careful and we need to be careful and we're trying to do that. But don't stop living. 
Your trust is in God. And sometimes you can't trace his hand, but you can trust his heart. God is still there. He's still here. The fifth thing, God does perfect work through imperfect people. Aren't you glad? I know I am. Never a Sunday goes by that I don't drive up here at 7 o'clock thinking, Lord, I'm not worthy to do this today. If those people knew what I thought from time to time, they wouldn't listen to me. Y'all know I am imperfect. I, I, I don't sit around singing hymns all day. I struggle just like you. I get angry just like you, especially when I'm driving. And I'm working on it. That is my thorn. Other drivers. <laughs> I make a joke of it, but if there is a time I, my frustration is viewed, I'm glad y'all don't ride with me. My poor wife has to, but I'm just telling you, there's none of us perfect, only forgiven, and God uses us in our imperfections. When you look through the Bible, I mean, you're not going to find any perfect people except Jesus. I mean, he uses a bunch of renegades. Esther wasn't perfect. Mordecai wasn't perfect. God uses imperfect people. The sixth thing is God is in the details of your life. God is in the details of your life. I could bore you to tears telling you that, you know, well, we think we, we, need, to, we need to ask God for help on the big things. But no, every day you can ask God for help. I, I'm going to give you one example. Many of you remember back long time ago, back in the 80s, when they said we had a gas shortage and they began to ration gas and they closed gas stations on Sunday so people couldn't buy gasoline. And it was during the, anyway, I was in college and I had been asked to speak down at a place in South Louisiana as a, as a student and I had, and my only fear was I had to get back home on Sunday and I didn't know if I was going to have enough gas to get home. Well, I thought, well, I'm going through Monroe, Louisiana. Surely that's a big enough town to be something opened. And sure enough, there was not. So I had another 90, 65 or 70 miles to go. And I got within about six miles of home on a back road in the deep piney woods of South Arkansas with no lights and ran out of gas. 12.30 in the morning, no cell phones. We didn't have the, we didn't know what a cell phone was. They didn't exist then. Some of you think, well, life's always had a cell phone. No, Jesus didn't have one. So forth. I got out of the car, I didn't have a flashlight. I, I thought, what am I gonna do? And I started walking up down the road and I saw there was a driveway. And when I got up to that driveway, it's pitch dark up through the trees and I know there was a house up there. And I stopped at that driveway and the, the thought occurred to me, most people out here have really big dogs. I said, I'm not going up there. So I went back to the car. I simply said, God, I don't know what to do. No traffic on this road. It's a back road. And within about 10 minutes, a car's coming, going the way I was going. And I said, well, the only thing I know to do is stick my hand out there. And I stuck my hand out there, and that car slowed down, and the window cracked down a little bit, and... 
I heard a voice say, David, is that you? I said, yeah, it's me. And it was, there were two or three people in the car, but the girl who spoke to me was a high school friend that I hadn't seen in three years. Now, you'll never convince me that that was a coincidence. God's in the details. And I could tell you time and time and time again that God will be in the details of your life if you will simply trust him. The last thing is that God is still on the throne. He, we believe in the providence of God, which means that God is in control. God knows what's going on. Quit living like everything's out of control. I know it's, it's all strange and we're afraid and so forth, but I want to tell you, God, God hadn't been shaken one bit. Our trust is in him because he's still on the throne. And the only way you can trust God is if you come to him through Jesus Christ. It's the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Folks, I don't know where you are in your relationship with God, but if you've never come to the place in your life where you ask God to forgive you of your sin, you realize you were separated from him, and you ask him to forgive you, and you believed and understood that Jesus lived a sinless life, died on the cross, was buried, rose again the third day, and you place your trust and faith in him, you need to do that right now because he will put the peace and he'll put the the salvation, the righteousness in your life. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we ask you today to bring those without Jesus to you. We pray that they would come to you in faith and salvation, trusting you as their Savior. I lift up those who are believers. A lot of us in here today have been believers a long time. Lord, remind us again that we can trust you, that you are on the throne, that you you know what's going on. And Lord, when we fret over all kinds of things going on in this nation, you help us to remember that the heart of the king is in your hand. And you can steer them the right way. And we ask God that you steer them the right way. That truth be known. If there's been things happen, let it come to light. But God, most of all, we're not trusting a political party. We're trusting you. I pray for that to come into the hearts of people. We pray that, God, you would bring peace and courage and strength and lift up hearts today. I pray for those that need a church. This is the place you bring them, God. What a wonderful place of people who love you and honor you and worship you. And I pray for those that have been saved that yet have not been baptized. I pray that they would be obedient. And so, Lord, we come to you now asking you to touch our lives. If you're watching us online, hit the connect button and somebody will help you right now. They'll pray with you, talk with you about knowing Jesus. If you want somebody to pray with you, they will. If you're in this room, you can let us know of a decision by using that card that's in that seat pocket in front of you. It says, my decision today. Or you can put your prayer request there.
Some of us will be at the front with our mask on to pray with you and to talk with you about knowing Christ after we're dismissed. But Lord, we ask you today, we ask you today to change lives. Thank you for these precious people who've come today and may they be encouraged having seen each other and been in the house of the Lord. And for those who could not come, we pray that you will encourage them today. Lord, we do trust you. And no matter what the circumstances are and will be in the coming weeks and months, we want to keep our eyes on you. Sometimes we can see you. Sometimes we can hear you. Sometimes we can't, but we're going to trust you today. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.